what I spent doing in my previous company is correcting the errors that I've made on designing that executive team. And it was a lot of uh, frustration, wasted emotional energy. So here we wanted to really build a foundation for the strongest executive team for that specific industry, for that specific opportunity. Welcome to the Super Managers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of Fellow.app. Today, I'm very excited to introduce you to Tony Jamis. He is the founder and CEO of Oyster, which is a company that helps you hire people in countries everywhere. They're really on a mission to help make remote work, hybrid work possible. And Tony is one of the most passionate leaders that I have ever met. He's a multi-time entrepreneur, has built very large companies in the past. And what really resonated for me in this interview was how purposeful Tony was in building this company. When he first started, he knew exactly the type of culture that he wanted. He knew exactly how important it was to hire the right executives. And even before hiring anybody else, his first hire or one of his first hires was actually bringing on an executive recruiter on a full-time basis. And he armed that executive recruiter with not only the profiles of the people that he would need on his executive team, but also the cultural aspects of those people as well. I've never heard someone be so purposeful about building a team and company from such an early spot. And the evidence shows Oyster has grown from zero to, you know, 600 people or just over 600 people in two and a half years. That is an insane amount of growth. And when you listen to the interview, you'll see why Tony is very charismatic and empathetic, and he really cares about this concept of human-centric leadership. This was an amazing interview. I think you'll really enjoy it. And if you do, please give us a five-star review on the podcast app of your choice. When you give us a review, if you write something down, I will give you a shout-out on one of the intros in the upcoming episodes. So if you want to hear your name, please do give us that review. And of course, if you haven't joined our super managers workspace on Slack, send us a note, send us an email to supermanagers at fellow.app. Look, this is a very special group. It's people who really care about growing as leaders. There's people from many, many countries, and everybody's looking to get advice, give advice, help each other out. It's a very special group. And if you haven't joined it, I would highly recommend you send us an email so we can let you into that workspace as well. And with that said, and without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Tony Jamis on this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Aiden. 
Yeah, very excited to do this. I think, you know, you you have had uh, quite an extensive leadership career. You've uh, been an executive at a number of different companies. This is, uh, you've founded many different companies. You've gone through acquisitions. You've gone through hypergrowth. And today you're the founder and CEO of Oyster HR. And it's a very relevant company in today's day and age. For everyone's background, what is Oyster and what do you guys do? Oyster is a global employment platform. We enable companies around the world to hire people anywhere without the need of setting up entities, hiring lawyers, accountants. We are a mission-driven company, first and foremost, on a mission to remove all the barriers in front of companies to tap into the global talent pool. We want every person on the planet to have the world as their oyster when they're looking for a job. Ah, so that's where the name comes from. It is now abundantly obvious now that I've heard it, but for whatever reason, I didn't quite go there when I first heard of Oyster. This is obviously a big problem that people need to solve because the way it used to work is you want to hire people in a different country. You might have to set up legal entities, figure out how to pay them, benefits, all that stuff. And it's really cool that, you know, Oyster is solving all those things. And I think there's a lot of interesting things about Oyster that we're going to dig into. But one of the things that we like to start with always is, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. Do you remember when you first started to manage and or lead a team? And what were some of the early mistakes that you made back then? I was uh, in my late 20s. I was transitioning from my career as an employee to becoming an entrepreneur. I founded my first company. 12 years ago, a company called Nexmo was an API business for building communication applications. And I had to start from scratch as a founder and I had to hire and build the first team. And there's so many mistakes you make the first time entrepreneur, you have to get really comfortable with making mistakes. And uh, if you look back at that company, I came to that business with this idea of the best product would win. And I was very far from the truth, actually. What I've learned is that the best marketed product wins. It's really this positioning of product in the market. And um, obviously, it was Nexmo. We were able to have a, a significant exit. The company was acquired last year for over $6.5 billion by Ericsson. But we really struggled in the beginning to realize that it's not only about you know build it and they will come. We had to really build the community, market the product to the right segment. So I was a bit naive. And when I started this business, and that's one of one of the mistakes. The other mistake is not having a talent acquisition strategy specifically for my executive team. So when you are an early stage founder, you have a lot of pressure. You want to hire people quickly. You default to people you know. You default to people that are close to you in your city and to your network, and you have really fear of not hiring fast enough. And you know, I was. I got lucky at Nexmo. I've hired some amazing people, but it wasn't a talent acquisition strategy here at Oyster. Since the beginning, I partner with a, an executive search consultant, even before hiring anybody. And we charted how this company will operate and what kind of leadership team we want to have. And we went on and hired everybody in my leadership team based on a, an extensive executive search process, based on their fit, their skill set, their mission alignment. Uh, and the diversity we're going to build in that team. Okay, so this is a very interesting one. You know, really great lesson on the business side that it's not always just the best product that when you need more than that. 
But it's really interesting from a talent perspective. I mean, it sounds like you you had a really good outcome. Maybe you would have had the outcome faster if you know you did some things differently. But really, a great outcome at the end. Talent ends up becoming really important, like you said. So that I understand this correctly, are you saying that you know when you started Oyster, you started with a talent uh, recruitment from the get go, and you use them to hire like the first handful of people? I, I would imagine again, someone with with your background, maybe you would have said, "Hey, I have a network. Like the first handful of people, I'm just gonna go. Like I know them. I'm gonna bring this person and that person and that person." But did you actually actively search for your executive team through a search firm, even with your network? Absolutely. The first person I've hired was an executive search consultant, was a general manager of one of the major executive search firm in technology. He was on a sabbatical. He helped me in my previous company. And that was the first person I hired. And, and wow. So you mean as a full-time employee? Wow. He worked for me in the beginning as, a, as in full-time because I had to hire five people in six months that were fit for purpose, mission aligned and, and highly diverse. And uh, the data, like when we looked at the data back then, we looked at companies that reached a unicorn status in the first, which is $1 billion of valuation in the first five years of operation. And when, when we look at the data of their talent, these companies have over-invested in their executive team earlier than other companies. And they hired executives that are capable not only to move from zero to one, which is the first phase that, you know, as a founder, you want to get to zero to one, but also from one to 10. You wanted scalability because what I spent doing in my previous company is correcting the errors that I've made on designing that executive team. And it was a lot of uh, frustration, wasted emotional energy. So here we wanted to really build a foundation for the strongest executive team for that specific industry, for that specific opportunity. Yeah, this is super interesting. So before you even hired, say, like your first developer or first salesperson, you went out and you you hired the executive team first, and then you let them build the team. Yeah, so part of that executive team was our VP of product. She, uh, Emily, that uh, she went on and uh, built the engineering team and we've hired a uh, head of engineering and, and more recently uh, a VP of engineering, but essentially uh, the executive team was designed uh, on purpose, intentionally to fit for what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. And, you know, I believe that the best team wins. That's definitely uh, a belief I have. And I believe also culture, the best culture wins because uh, the market, the variables are defined, whether the size of the market, the growth, the segments in the market, what what really makes a difference. And that even the technology, right? The technology today is easily copyable and increasingly easily copyable. So you cannot gain a long-term competitive advantage just with software. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, one thing you said really stood out to me is you were looking for things like cultural fit and a few other factors, even though the company just started. I feel like for a lot of companies, you know, they hire people, they kind of see where the culture goes, they get a sense of that, and then they have like a rubric that they can then use to hire people. But it sounds like you just had a bunch of things in mind, like you knew what kind of culture you wanted to build. And that was incorporated from the very beginning, which is, I would say, like way faster than most companies do it. Do I have that correct? You have that absolutely correct. And the reason why I wanted to start another startup is because I wanted to change the world I live in. 
I wanted to design my life in a way that gives me what I need as a leader. I need to feel safe. I need to be seen. I need to feel purposeful, to have mission driving me. And so these were the foundation on which we built Oyster. I wanted to be surrounded by highly diverse people from all over the world. We wanted to build a company that has diversity resembling planet Earth. So these were foundational to our success as a company because we want to be ourselves a role model for other companies that are going on that journey from moving to in-office to global hiring and being distributed. So it was, it's part of our success strategy is to be ourselves, to be ourselves the gold standard of distributed work. This is the same strategy as Salesforce.com use. Salesforce.com, they were the best at B2B sales and they sell you the best CRM software. This is the same strategy as HubSpot. They were the best themselves at, at inbound marketing and they sold you the best inbound marketing platform. This is the best as Gainsight. They were the best at customer success and they sold you the best customer success platform. This is the same here strategy we're using, this category creation strategy where we wanna be ourselves the best at being distributed, human-centric and mission-driven. And we're gonna sell you the platform that enables you to hire people anywhere and treat them like humans. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, there's so much that I can relate to. Obviously, if you are the best at something, then people will want to associate with you. Yes, they will you know, use your software and your platform, but just by through association, by consuming your content, by interacting with your people, hopefully like they can, through osmosis, gain a lot more. And one thing that maybe is going to be helpful for the audience, because you've mentioned a few times how distributed and diverse the team is, maybe we can talk a little bit in terms of numbers how many people roughly work at Oyster, how many countries, time zones, just to get a sense of the distributed nature of your company today. Yeah, so we started the company in January 2020. So that's uh, a bit more than two and a half years ago. And we grew to 650 today, Oysters around the world, distributed in 80 countries. We are 60% women in the company, including on the leadership team. And... Uh, we are top 3% of all technology company in terms of engagement in the company. We use a platform that benchmark us against our peers. And so we reach a top 3% of, of engagement levels around the world. That's amazing. I mean, there's so many interesting things about that. You know, 60% women, 80 countries, which is just, it's just such a crazy high number. So I assume basically every time zone there is, for the most part, you work everywhere. Pretty much. And actually, why we were able to do, achieve that amount of scale and diversity in such a short period of time, because we're using our own platform. We are the biggest customer of Oyster. So we have the superpower to enable us to tap into the global talent pool and hire the best people, no matter where they are. Yeah. So this is really interesting. I mean, just, um, I mean, a very tactical thing, 80 countries, you know, lots of diversity. When you look for a role, is that a consideration? Like, would you ever say, hey, we already have someone in London, you know, we can hire someone in London or we can hire them in some other city like Paris or something. And they're both really good. We rate them equally. We'll hire the person in Paris. Or is it just uh, you look for very specific people and they end up being in different countries? I just wonder if that's a factor that you consider. It's not a factor. The factors we consider are we... Obviously, we want to have the best talent right around the world, but also where they are located in terms of their their position in the 
economical scale. We have segmented the world into three tiers, tier one, tier two, tier three. I say tier one would be these cities, expensive cities in the world, San Francisco and London. And tier three would be, uh, let's say, Afghanistan. So we have a goal that 80% of our hires outside of tier one areas in the world, because we, one of our values is to elevate talent from emerging economies. And so we thrive to create that geographical diversity by distributing our, our team outside of these uh, technology hubs where usually the opportunity was concentrated. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you know, a lot of times in, in these concentrated areas, they're not necessarily super diverse from the get-go. So by hiring elsewhere, that allows you to tap into the diversity. And, you know, going from zero to 650 in two and a half years is just astronomical. I think when people double year over year in terms of people, systems start breaking, you know, processes, infighting, there's all sorts of things that happen. To experience that kind of growth, and I know a large part of it is going to be, and now I get the, you know, hire the executive team that has, you know, zero to one, but also one to 10. But what else do you think that, you know, played a role in that? You know, for you to be able to scale that quickly and not have everything break everywhere, there must be some other things that you folks do. First, we had to be very intentional and prescriptive of how we're going to work together across all these time zones and also in an asynchronous way. So we have developed our own model of trading. We call a follow the sun because people are in different time zones and we want them to be successful no matter what they are. So it is heavily focused on asynchronous way of communication and collaboration. We consider internally our internal documentation as well as our documentation we offer to our clients. So we take that aspect of accessibility highly seriously. And we have designed an objective key result process that enables us to clarify what expectations are that is um, more mature than our size early on in the business because we wanted to trust people to do their job no matter what they are because we, unlike being in an office where you, you confuse presence with productivity, here we had to be very clear about what do we expect from people and how do we connect their expectation with the goals of the company. Got it. So lots of processes there. I love the idea of follow the sun. What are some things that maybe you do differently? I guess like there's a lot of focus on asynchronous communication. Like maybe we can talk about an example of something that you do with your team asynchronously that other people can maybe model from you. Hmm. Yeah, so let's take the example of my executive team. It happens every Tuesday. On Tuesday morning, everyone in my team receive a video and uh, a Notion page about what's happening in each team. So everybody would be at the same page, getting access to the same information. We know what happened in marketing, we know what happened in sales, we know what happened with product and so on and so forth. And the agenda is already prepared in advance. There's also some asynchronous uh, content to consume about the subject of discussion ahead of time. That makes the meeting very effective. And it also make the, removes the anxiety from the team of what to expect from that meeting. Another tip we use is actually our Friday, uh, and I'm looking forward to tomorrow, we call it Focus Friday. We don't have any internal meetings. We use that time to, to focus, to be in the flow to catch up on the week and to make sure that we enter the weekend without the, the pressure that we need to have that many other technology companies have. People tend to work over the weekend in high pressure jobs. 
And that enabled us to really manage our energy as a team and come back fresh on Monday and be highly present and highly engaged. These are just some of the examples I can continue. We have so many more. Yeah, got it. So I think like, you know, part of it is a lot of written communication. And is your executive team, they're distributed as well across different time zones. So so a lot of it is that for things that are status updates or things that you're informing each other, all those things are always in written format. You don't need to make sure that everybody is there synchronously. You only use that for things that absolutely must have everybody present. So synchronous time is super scarce. It's very hard to come by and you treat it a lot more valuably. So, Yeah. And it also enables me to connect on a personal level with my team when I have some synchronous time with them. Right. So in order to get stuff done, we don't have to have synchronous time, but in order to connect on a personal level, in order to build trust, in order to model the behavior, in order to sustain the culture, all this happen in more synchronous format. So we kind of divided the getting stuff done can happen asynchronously and we force ourselves to continue to improve that every quarter. But then the connection, the trust building, the culture influencing, that will happen synchronously. Hey, everyone, just a quick note before we go back into the interview. If you're a listener of this podcast, you're probably always looking for ways to get better at the art of managing teams. And that involves managing a team budget. Given the current economic times, it's really important for managers to understand financial forecasting and how it impacts their organization. And also, I think it's just in general very good for everybody to have a good sense of what a balance sheet is, what a profit and loss statement looks like, what a cash flow statement is, and really get down into the financials and how it impacts your teams and how to get really, really good at forecasting. So the good news is our friends at Morning Brew, one of my favorite newsletters, they're running a course. It's called Financial Forecasting, and it's a carefully curated set of lessons that provides leaders the essential tools on turning mushy strategy stuff into quantifiable metrics to basically go from a blank spreadsheet to projected performance and define what financial success actually means for your team your division, or your business. And the best part is all super managers, podcast listeners get $50 off when you register through the URL. Now, we'll leave the URL in the show notes as well, but it's education.morningbrew.com slash fellow. You heard that right. Just go to education.morningbrew.com slash fellow to get $50 off your course membership. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. I think that's a very good division so that I understand. So for your one-on-one meetings, for example, you do still do that synchronously or you do make one-on-one time with people on your team or with skip levels and, and those are done synchronously because that's maybe there's some strategy, maybe there's some discussion, but it's also rapport building, trust building, and those things are separate from like, let's just get stuff done. That's absolutely yeah. And now, now you do have also certain type of tasks that require some synchronous collaboration, such as a brainstorm around a certain topic. So we use a tool such as the Miro boards, where we design an experience for the team to collaborate around. And then we, we go back and then process the data that the team came up with and, and deliver it in an asynchronous format. This is what we achieve together in that workshop. Yeah, that makes sense. And you also said that there's videos that you 
have as part of this, um, you know, the executive team so that it's consumed prior to any sort of synchronous meeting? Does everybody record a video or is that something that you do for everybody else? Or just very tactically speaking, uh, just wondering what happens there. Yeah, so everyone in my team is responsible for their own notion space about updating what happened in the previous week. And that includes an audio file or a video file. I want to feel what they're feeling when they're talking about their business. So it's not only about the written information, it's about the nonverbal communication that I want to know how they're feeling about doing their work because yeah. I care about how they're feeling about doing their work. If you think about what is one of the main goals of a CEO is to care about how their team feels about working with them as a leader. And I want to hear their voice. I want to hear their body language. Yeah, that's a very good point. You know, as you say, it, it becomes clear like why you would do that and the additional benefits of that. You're right. Like most status reports are just, hey, here's a bunch of text, but it doesn't actually give you the, like you could be writing information and it's, maybe not even great information, maybe the results aren't where they, they should be, but you can still be very optimistic in that you know exactly what you need to do to change things and like next quarter is gonna be incredible. So yeah, that's a really good point there as well. You know, as we're talking about leadership, you said that you care a lot about, you know, the people on your team, you wanna make sure that they're enjoying the work they're doing, they're enjoying working with you. This ties into something that I think that you're very passionate about and uh, called, you know, human-centric leadership. You talked also about things like on Fridays, you don't have internal meetings so that people can actually be able to, you know, clear the queue, enjoy their weekend. I'm curious, like, how do you define human-centric leadership? When did you decide that that's a thing that you wanted to, your leadership style to be? It is really being curious about what I need as a human and realizing that what I need as a human is shared. So why I started this company in the first place, I was walking with my co-founder Jack in San Francisco in late 2019, and he asked me the question, if you want to build a company, how would you build it? Like, what would be the conditions for building a company? I said, first, I want to have freedom of location. I want to live where I want to live today. I live in this beautiful island of Cyprus. I live 50 meters from the beach. I don't want to continue living in central London or San Francisco and, and have these commutes. Secondly, I told him, I want to have emotional safety at the workplace. I don't want to feel judged. I don't want to judge anybody. And thirdly, I told him, I want massive amount of diversity. I want to give opportunity for people from all over the world. These were my conditions. And what I realized is that it's not only me that has these needs. Every human being has a need of safety. Every human being has a need of freedom and flexibility. And this is how I started developing this human-centric leadership around, well, let's be open about what do we need as humans and how do we design a workplace that enable us to, to satisfy some of these needs. So think about emotional safety. Like if I want to feel safe inside of me as a leader, I need to create safety around me. I need to not react to bad news. I need to be okay of being disappointed with others and so on and so forth. So, so this becomes a parallelism between you need as a human and what you can give to other humans. This is why I define as human-centric leadership. This is very interesting. And I want to understand the way that you got here. Like, is this in contrast to your previous company? Did you also have the same mindset there? Or was a lot of like your current views 
from a, if I were to do this again and build a company and not have, say, some of the emotional pain that I had there, this is what it would look like. You touch on an important point, Aiden, which is the emotional pain, right? So I burned out in my previous company. I suffered like many other humans from certain mental health issues. We all do have suffering. And to back up a bit, I was born in Lebanon in 1980. And the first 10 years of my life, all I saw was a civil war. That led me to have a condition we call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that is incompatible with being a CEO of hypergross company. And just to be honest, it drives you to be hypervigilant. It drives you to burnout. You have higher risk of burnout. And it makes it very difficult for you to build relationship because actually you think the world is completely unsafe around you, including people. So specifically people. So when I exited my previous business, I was fortunate to have the luxury to take a sabbatical of a year. And I dedicated the time to really explore how can I heal from this traumatic experiences I had in my previous life. And this is where I realized actually that what I need is, is to create safety for myself, is to have purpose in my life that is connected with who I am, really, my true self. And um, I realized, actually, I don't want to sacrifice my time with my children, for instance. I want to be there for them. Then I started, what, what I started realizing is that, well, these needs of safety, of work-life balance, of psychological, or psychological safety and purpose, these were not only my needs. These were every human being need. And when you look today in the world, the level of disengagement in the workforce is shocking. Like we spend 80% of our life working, our adult life working, and then that all time, a vast majority of the workforce hate their jobs. So how can we change the way we work and start by building a culture that deliver high engagement, deliver amount of psychological safety, elevate talent. And remote work has a very important role to play because remote work, when you don't see people in the office, you give people opportunity. Be intentional in building trust. You are forced to define what success is for people. So it pushes you to be a better organization as you transition from the office to remote work. And it makes you a more human-centric organization. Yeah, thank you for bringing that together. And um, that's very interesting that you, you know, from a background perspective, it seems like you very purposefully designed the work environment around you. And then you said, hey, this is really good. I want this for everybody. And so let's make sure that everybody in the company has it. As you were describing it, you said what it means to be able to create like, you know, a safe environment for everybody around you. And you mentioned some tactical things. And I think it's really important for people to understand like what that means. So if they say like, we too want to do this for our teams, like what are the tactical things you should do? You mentioned two things. One was, you know, how you react to bad news. And it's maybe okay to be disappointed when you know, certain things happen. Maybe you can describe tactically, like what are some things that people should do to create that more safe environment for everyone? These two items are, I think, critical. As really behavior as a leader, people will look at you and, and model your behavior. And thirdly, I think you can start designing the organizational processes around that as well. Like for instance, we discussed how to have a clear expectation uh, from the person, the objective key result process that connect their job with the company's uh, goals. Transparency plays an important role. So trust and transparency plays an important role because you build trust through transparency and you need to be transparent and contextually in the right way with your team, but you always have to default to transparency. 
so these are some of the strategies we're using here at Oyster. But I, ha I have to say, Aiden, look, it's not always as rosy that I'm telling you. I mean, like at the end of the day, we're still humans influenced by our previous experiences. We do have reactivity. The key is to minimize reactivity. You cannot completely remove reactivity, especially if you're building a highly diverse team because everybody is coming from very different backgrounds and they, they bring to their work their previous traumas, you know, work traumas. And so the key is the journey. The more you behave in a less reactive way, the more you're going toward that, that direction of human-centric leadership where you create a work environment that doesn't trigger people as much as other work environments. Because life is hard. We all have emotional challenges. Why work should tax us more? How can you make work support us? How can you make work work for us and not the other way around? Yeah, I love what you're saying. On the reactive side, would you also say that that's also true for good news? Like, I'm wondering if you just take a stoic view on all events and events are events, you don't try to get too emotionally reactive on both sides, or is it okay to be really excited and celebrate, you know, the good stuff too? Startups are a journey of, you want to sustain momentum in a startup, right? I mean, it is a hard job for everybody that go through such a high growth and startup are defined by growth. So you have to keep sustaining the highs and it is absolutely needed to celebrate the highs and recognize the people who achieve these highs. Got it. Got it. And so in terms of going back to like synchronous time and and getting people to bond and, and relationships. So from a company perspective, do you also get together in person? I'm just curious, like how that part plays out. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, we, as the world moved from a growth at any cost, and then now with the inflation and the interest rate, uh, moving everybody to efficient growth, we had to cancel our company retreat. It was planned for earlier this year. And it was a very difficult decision for everybody. I have 650 people in my company. If I met 50 in person, that would be a stretch. But before we went into this challenging phase from a macroeconomy standpoint, I had the chance to meet my team uh, for the first time in November last year. And uh, it was a very, very emotional meeting. We, you know, we built this unicorn company in a record time and we've never met in person. And uh, what was striking to me is that this team has very high trust. And one of my VPs came to me and told me before that in-person meeting, I knew that I could trust this team. After this meeting, I can feel that I can trust this team. It was a difference between knowing and feeling. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. And that's a very good way, I would say, to describe it. I wanted to also touch on this idea of, and we address it a little bit, which is reducing inequality through remote work. I know this is a topic that, that you care a lot about. And when I first hear the term reducing inequality, my mind may, basically goes straight to diversity and hiring diverse teams. But I think that you probably mean a lot more than that when you talk about reducing inequality. So maybe you can describe, you know, what is the goal there? If you were to succeed, what actually ends up happening? Yeah, so we want to transition the world into more equal opportunity and more equal pay in the next 10, 15 years, leveraging this trend of distributed hiring and remote work. Just to give you some data point, there are 90 million jobs going unfulfilled in the West 
according to BCG, that's $8.5 trillion economical loss. At the same time, you have 1.5 billion knowledge workers coming into the workforce, mostly in emerging economies. Brian Kaplan, the economist from George Mason University in his book, Open Borders, he argued that if you remove the concept of borders from tenant mobility, you can triple the world GDP. And, you know, philosophically speaking, I was talking to my co-founder earlier today, and he shared with me his thinking around this growth in this economy. You know, we live in a world that requires continuous growth. Let's face it, that's not going to stop anytime soon. But the way we are growing today, it's really through utilizing natural resources, through increasing consumption, through really damaging our environment in a very fast-paced way that is totally unsustainable. But if you think about growth that could come from the knowledge economy today, leveraging this 1.5 billion knowledge workers that are coming into the workforce in the next 10 years, we have an opportunity to shift the definition of economical growth to a more sustainable one based on knowledge growth and not resource utilization growth. And this is why I believe this move to remote work is coinciding in a time in our history where we cannot continue to consume the way we consume and grow through depleting our natural resources. We have to find other means of feeding that capitalistic machine to sustain our economic growth. And through remote work, we enable this new generation of remote workers to come in and create that level of growth through knowledge. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, that's a very good point. Growth, you're right. I mean, if you're not growing, you're dying. This needs to continue. But you're right that the way that we grow can definitely change over the course of time. I know you're a big fan of remote work. Obviously, Oyster stands for this. You believe this is a better way of working. And just so that we are super clear on the definition of remote work, when you say remote work, you're not necessarily saying it must be work from home. People might work out of a co-working space. They might work out of a coffee shop. Maybe they work from the beach. Whatever it is, it's more work from anywhere. It doesn't need to be everybody coming in specifically to the office, but maybe some people don't want to work from their apartment. Maybe they go to a co-working space. You're okay with those sorts of concepts. For people to work from anywhere and give them the ability to control when they want to work based on, on their own life schedule. To give you an example, I don't work in the morning. I work in the afternoon and in the evening. I spend the morning with my two little toddlers. Uh, they come here and we spend some time together. And then at 2 p.m., I go uh, pick up my daughter from school and I spend one hour with her. We have lunch together. And so I want to design my life the way that suits me and yet be the CEO of Hypergrowth uh, Unicorn. And so that's what I mean by, by remote work is giving people freedom and flexibility to control their life and not having the work imposed to them. I was talking to one of my colleagues in the Philippines two days ago when she, before joining Oyster, she used to commute six hours a day in, in Manila to go to her work. She would come back home depleted. She wouldn't sleep much. She had two children to take care of, and then she would sleep on the bus. And then, so when she joined Oyster, her life totally changed. She was able to be more present with children. She was able to sleep better, improve her health. And I can tell you, her engagement level and productivity level has doubled. Yeah, it's very stark. I mean, a lot of us complain about or used to complain in the larger cities, an hour commute, an hour and a half. Six hours is, uh, is quite on the other end of the spectrum. It's crazy that that actually is something that does happen uh, in various places. I did want to ask you, so your view, fast forward 10 years, 
you talked about if there was no economic borders, you know, what would happen? Like, what is your view? Like, do you think that, you know, from an economic standpoint, salaries and pay scales and everything with enough time, it just becomes, it doesn't actually matter. Maybe there's some minor adjustments, but does the world really equalize over the course of time? Is that what you see? That's my hope. And that's why I'm here. So not only equalize in terms of pay, but also equalize in terms of human capital potential. Today, if you're the best software developer in Morocco, the best job you can have is to go work for a local bank. After five years, your human capital has plateaued. But if you are, have the opportunity to work for the best startup in Paris that is interested in investing in your development, you're going to continue to grow. Maybe you'll become an entrepreneur and maybe you'll, you'll create the next scene of technology in Morocco. So really, there's human capital inequality that is also a part of this journey. And it's also a question of diversity and inclusiveness. When Ireland made a remote work a right, we've seen doubling of women in managerial roles in the workforce. So like, how can we get to a stage where diversity is not even a question anymore? You know, I think we are going through a phase in the workforce where we're going to talk about diversity maybe for the next 20 years. But at some point, if we embrace this distributed hiring and we adopt ways of working that they can make people successful no matter what they are and design operational processes that, that achieve that, then, uh, well, we will get used to massively diverse workforces and this question will disappear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you for painting it in, in that way. That makes all the sense in the world. You know, Tony, this has been a very interesting discussion. We've talked about, you know, how to address inequality in the workplace, human-centric leadership, following the sun as a, work, a method of work, crazy growth from like in two and a half years to get 650 people and maintaining super high diversity and engagement all throughout. For all the managers and leaders out there, this is a final question we always ask is, are there any final tips, tricks, or parting words of wisdom that you would leave them with? Be yourself because your team wants you to be yourself. And uh, so today as leaders, we we tend to, we are under a lot of pressure and and we wanna sometimes hide unintentionally part of who we are, but actually bring your whole self to the workplace will pay you a dividend in terms of leadership because your team wants you to be you. That's great advice and a great place to end it. Tony, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Aiden, for having me. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app slash supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.